from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Perspective is a radio program that presents interviews of people who have chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. My son Damien was in the Washington, D.C. area and had an opportunity to interview Laylee Miller Moreau at the Taharay Justice Center. Laylee is the founder and executive director of the Taharay Justice Center, which is a free legal service for women and girls who are fleeing human rights abuses. She co-wrote a book titled Do They Hear You When You Cry, which describes the immigration case involving female genital mutilation that inspired the creation of the Taharay Justice Center. Damien starts the interview by asking Laylee to describe her relationship with the Taharay Justice Center and how did the Taharay Justice Center come into being. I am currently the executive director of the Taharay Justice Center. We provide free legal services for women and girls who are fleeing human rights abuses. Before being executive director, though, I worked as a litigator at a large law firm in downtown D.C., and then prior to that I worked for the Justice Department. But I founded the center over 10 years ago now, and the reason for its inception had to do with my involvement when I was a law student in the case of a young woman who became the first in the United States to receive refugee status or asylum because of a tribal practice known as female genital mutilation. And her case, which was decided by the highest immigration appellate court, opened the legal doors in the, under U.S. law to what we now call gender-based asylum law, which grants protection to women and girls who are fleeing gender-based persecution or forms of violence. And so although Fauzia's case involved the practice of female genital mutilation, other cases that are now being granted protection include things like rape, trafficking, domestic violence, honor crimes, and a wide range of other forms of gender-based persecution. And it is the representation of those women that the Tahari Justice Center engages in. I remember you gave a, uh, a talk about that case, which was uh, led to the inception of this organization. Could you tell us a little bit about, a little bit more about what that case was about, about what female genital mutilation is for those of us that aren't familiar, and um, how the Tahari Justice Center came out of that experience? The Tahari Justice Center began as a result of my involvement in what became a high-profile case involving a young woman's right to receive asylum because of female genital mutilation. And the reason for my involvement in that case was that prior to law school, I was participating in a Baha'i social and economic development project in West Africa, in the Gambia. And when I was there, I was exposed to lots of issues related to the inequality of women and men, unlike I had been exposed in the past. And one of those issues was female genital mutilation. Now, it's commonly referred to as female circumcision or female genital cutting. People have different words for it. 
international uh, UN and also African cultural bodies have decided that female genital mutilation is the proper term, but I'll refer to it kind of interchangeably. So when I was in West Africa, I was first exposed to the practice and became interested in understanding it. And when I returned and went to law school, I kind of took every opportunity that I had to write a paper on the subject or learn more about it. And so when I was in law school, I had a class on refugee law. And there I wrote a paper arguing that you should be able to receive asylum in the United States because of the practice. Um, at the time, in the courts, it was not determined that you could receive asylum because of female genital mutilation. And so I was having to make what were controversial legal arguments around the fact that it should be granted. It just so happened that the professor of that class was the director of asylum in the United States under the Immigration and Naturalization Service. And so he challenged me on some of the points that I was making, and I think he really helped me develop a very airtight uh, legal argument. And in the course of it, I learned 10 years later, convinced him of the merits of whether or not you could receive asylum on that basis. Now, this was all, of course, academic at the time. I was a student, and that paper grew um, over about a period of a year into what was then a uh, published law journal article. So fast forward a little bit, and in the summer of my second year in law school, I was working for a private immigration attorney. And he just noticed on my resume that I wrote a paper on female genital mutilation that was being published. So he came into my office and he said, so I hear you know something about this, I think his words were, the female genital thing. And I said, I knew something about it. And he said, well, see what you can do with this case. We have a hearing in 14 days. And what he put on my desk was a very thin file of the case of a young woman named Fauzia Kasinja. She, at the time, was imprisoned in uh, Newark, New Jersey. And she was placed in, in, in incarceration because she had come to our border and was honest, passed over the passport which she purchased under emergent conditions. And by the way, most refugees do flee under emergent conditions and don't have time to apply for a visitor's visa. So this was a very typical story for a refugee. But she was honest at the border, and she said, this is not mine. And what we do to people who do that is that we put them in jail while their case is being adjudicated. And so as a 17-year-old girl, she was placed in maximum security prison facilities and immigration detention facilities for almost two years while her case was being adjudicated. So it was her hearing that was in 14 days. But that meant we had four days to prepare any kind of a brief or submit any evidentiary materials because there was a 10-day evidentiary submission requirement. So as fate would have it, I had spent the last year researching and writing a legal argument really for her, um, although I hadn't met her, of course. And so in that four-day period of time, I quite literally cut and pasted her name throughout this document and added some arguments, and so within four days, I was able to submit about a 40-page legal brief on her behalf, along with over 100 pages worth of evidentiary materials. Now, you know, that wouldn't have been possible to reproduce in four days, but things had happened such that I had been really preparing for her for about a year without ever having met her. So we submitted the brief, and then the attorney I was working for asked me if I wanted to argue the case. And so I did. And um, it was a very disturbing experience. Um, I was a new and idealistic attorney, law student at the time. And the judge was cruel, to put it mildly. And I learned only after the hearing. I'm kind of glad I didn't know this beforehand. But 
he had a reputation for being extremely cruel. And um, I'm happy to say last year was actually suspended from the bench. So that was an interesting introduction to our justice system, and it was an unfortunate turn of circumstances for her. She had a very bad judge, and he denied her asylum. And so I took the case on appeal from the private immigration lawyer that I was working with who was charging, actually, a great deal of money for her representation. And I brought it to American University's Human Rights Law Clinic, where they continued to, they handled the appeal for free on a pro bono basis. And it was appealed then to the highest immigration appellate court. I continued to work on the case as a student um, now, along with other law students um, and law professors on the case. And it was on appeal that her case received a lot of media attention. A New York Times reporter in particular really uh, honed in on her story and ended up publishing a front page article. Um, it was on the front top upper left-hand corner of the New York Times with a big picture, which I understand is kind of the golden spot uh, in, in a newspaper. And then when you open the newspaper, it occupied two full pages in the New York Times. And the story that the New York Times reporter told was not only of Fauzia's courageous escape from a forced marriage in Togo and her family's arrangement of female genital mutilation that was going to be performed on her. Her father had previously protected it from her, but when he died, she lost that protection. So his family was arranging for her to be sold to a 50-year-old man as his fourth wife and to undergo the ritual circumcision that she had avoided up until that point, and her, help, her sister helped her escape. So the New York Times reporter told that story. But she also told the story of my helping Fozia as a law student and then the precedent-setting legal arguments that were now pending in her case. So that resulted in kind of a watershed of other media attention. And there was a period of, I don't know, a few weeks where CNN and all the nightly news and kind of a lot of other media outlets were also very interested in her case. And it, it did receive a lot of attention then also in the court system. You know, I think... As Americans, we like to believe that all cases are equal and, and all cases are given the same level of attention and seriousness, but that's not true. In fact, when cases receive media attention, they're given a whole lot more consideration. And her case, which was kind of buried in the system, was then plucked out of the system and handed to the uh, general counsel's office of the Immigration and Naturalization Service, which is where kind of high-profile or important cases go to make sure they're handled well. So then it ended up going into the hands of my former law professor, interestingly, who was the director of asylum and handled these things at a strategic level for the Immigration Naturalization Service. And he ended up arguing the other side on behalf of the Immigration Naturalization Service. Or I should say the general counsel himself argued the case, but my law professor, Bo Cooper, ended up informing uh, and helping to write the brief for the Immigration Naturalization Service and strategizing so at that stage, at the Board of Immigration Appeals, the Immigration Naturalization Service, although they were opposing us, actually conceded some very important legal arguments. They still, however, opposed the case based on other legal arguments, and I won't go into the brutal detail of that, but it set us up for winning the case. And ultimately, a precedent decision was written granting women asylum because of female genital mutilation 
Uh, and as I mentioned, that decision has now been used to open the door, in fact, to a very wide range of forms of gender-based persecution. Now, that all sounds good, and, and there has been 10 years of progress now in that area of the law, but we are still really struggling. There's a lot to do in the law. And in fact, just in the last few months, and I've been talking recently to my colleagues about strategies around how to combat this, we have been facing a series of very bad court decisions that are actually undoing some of the progress that we've experienced since the case that I have just described. And so while America has been increasingly generous on the issue of gender-based asylum law, we seem to now be changing our minds, and we are now backtracking on some of that. In particular, decisions came down that denied asylum because of female genital mutilation when it was performed in the past, also denying asylum based on a fear of female genital mutilation to your daughters, creating for many of our clients the impossible Sophie's choice of leaving their two-year-old or three-year-old here in U.S. foster care or bringing them with them if they are themselves deported. So it's just an awful, awful situation. So progress was made with Fazia's case, but unfortunately right now there's a lot of advocacy that needs to be done in order to protect women and girls from all over the world who are fleeing many brutal forms of violence. So we have a long, long way to go. The creation of the center came about because the media attention um, in her case resulted in commercial interest in her story and in my uh, representation of her. And so we were approached by a number of different um, kind of commercial, both book and TV and film outlets, and ultimately decided to write a book together. And so we wrote a book uh, called Do They Hear You When You Cry? That book was published by Bantam Doubleday Dell. It was translated into 14 languages and interestingly became a bestseller in Japan and Germany and then did very well also in the United Kingdom. Um, it did okay in the United States. It came out in paperback within a year of it coming out in hardback. Um, and it can be gotten on Amazon or any Barnes and Noble. But that story details her story. Half of it is set in Africa to try to explain the context and help people understand the wonderful family that she came from. But then the negative parts of her culture, that her culture was largely beautiful, but there was this one practice that was very harmful that she fled. And then the rest of the story is set in the United States, and it details not only her uh, legal case, but also her experience in the immigration system and her time in detention. So when that, case, when that book came out, um, it was in 1998, I took my portion of the proceeds from that book to start the Tahereh Justice Center. So that was over 10 years ago now. And since then, the Tahari Justice Center has grown to a staff of 23 people. We're actively representing over 550 people at any given time. We represent women and girls who are fleeing things like female genital relation, but also things like sexual trafficking, honor crimes, domestic violence, widow rituals, um, a wide range of forms of violence. Um, and we represent women from all over the world, from Africa, from Latin America, Eastern Europe, Asia, the Middle East. And we engage in our work in a holistic way, which means for us that we provide them not only legal representation and we provide immigration law help, some family law representation, and then on occasion civil law representation, 
but we also have a social, a full-time social worker that works with all of our clients to make sure that their social services needs are also being met. And then finally, we also engage in public policy advocacy on behalf of our clients to try to address their systemic or policy needs. So we will represent individual clients, but then we see trends in our representation of them. And then we realize that this is a larger issue than one that this client's facing. And so we then lobby on the Hill and, and work in trying to change the underlying laws or policies that might be um, affecting the treatment of our clients. Layla, you mentioned that the seed of that whole story started when you were in Africa yourself working with some Baha'is there on a project. Can you talk a little bit about your um, involvement in the Baha'i faith? I know you're a Baha'i and I don't quite remember what your background is, if you were raised as a Baha'i or how is it that you became a Baha'i? And then also, um, is there any link between, or what is the link between um, the Baha'i faith and this organization that you started and how does your training as a Baha'i inform what you're doing here with the, uh, with the Tahar Justice Center? Um, the, I am a Baha'i and I was, was raised a Baha'i, I think actually unusually, I'm American by ethnicity, um, European, Caucasian American. But unusually, I suppose I'm a third-generation Baha'i, and my grandmother was one of the first American Baha'is and, and came into the Baha'i faith in the 1930s. But as, as you may be aware, in the Baha'i faith, it is not presumed that you're a Baha'i just because your parents are Baha'is or even your grandparents are Baha'is. And in fact, um, Baha'is believe in a principle that we call individual investigation of truth. And behind that is the belief that it really is important for everybody to do their own seeking spiritually and to make a decision for themselves that um, they want to be a Baha'i and, and if not, what they want to be. And so when I was in my early teens, I kind of went through a period of attending different churches and mosques and temples. I went to one Harry Krishna meeting, which was very interesting. But I went through a period of really trying to figure out what I believed. And what was very clear to me is that the Baha'i faith had, in my view, the best balance of being both rational and also faith-based and inspiring. The Baha'i faith is a very mystical faith, and like all faiths, is inspiring and kind of invokes great levels of, of belief and, and faith in God and in the progress of humanity and the potential of humans. But on the other hand, it's very pragmatic and it's very rational. And Baha'is believe very strongly in the, the harmony of science and religion and that things ultimately need to make sense. And so there are many laws in the Baha'i faith that really have guided my life and my professional work as well that all have to do with very lofty ideals, but then very practical guidance about how we can achieve those very lofty ideals. So for example, um, Baha'is believe very strongly in justice and very strongly in the in, in the equality of women and men. And in fact, the Baha'i faith is the only religion in recorded history to unambiguously affirm the equality of women and men from its inception. And so the Baha'i faith believes this very strongly. And, and a really wonderful analogy, I think, that's in the Baha'i writings that is also reflected in the logo of the Tahari Justice Center is the idea that humanity is like a bird with two wings. And the bird of civilization is unable to soar to its fullest potential unless both of its wings, which represent men and women, or more female and male, I think also kind of qualities of feminine and masculine, that when um, those are balanced, that humankind will be able to soar to its fullest potential. And until we have that absolute equality, 
reflected in both wings. We will, as a society, forever remain handicapped, and this bird will kind of be forced to flop around on the ground, basically, until we can figure that out and achieve true equality between women and men. In that analogy also is reflected the fact that Baha'is believe that this is not just a women's issue. Um, it's also a men's and a women's issue because we both have a deep interest. We're both affected and we're both handicapped by the lack of equality of women and men. And so that principle guides my commitment to this issue. Um, also the belief in the important role of men guides, practically speaking, the kinds of work that we engage in. And also the views of the Baha'i faith on justice. I think it's, it's actually very interesting. The Baha'i faith takes a view on justice unlike any other religion. You know, in Judaism, for example, the notion of justice is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. In Christianity, there is a lot of talk about turn the other cheek and forgive and forget. And the vast uh, majority of the Bible has this emphasis on when you're wronged, this is your treatment. The Baha'i faith kind of takes both of those, essentially, and combines them in, in a way reflected in the work that we do. And, and what, what, what the Baha'i faith does is it talks about justice being absolutely important and, in fact, a prerequisite to being able to achieve unity and world peace. Uh, we have to have justice uh, or we won't have unity. But it also talks about justice as being a way to see through our own eyes and not through the eyes of others. And so justice is something important to involve truth and um, absolute clarity and objectivity. And I think what's unique about the Baha'i Faith's view on justice is where it places responsibility for implementing justice. So the Baha'i Faith would basically accept both the Judaic view of justice and the Christian view at the same time, but place the role for implementation of justice on different people. What the Baha'i Faith does is it places the role of implementing justice on institutions in society, that there are appropriate governing bodies, judicial bodies, consultative bodies, but institutions in society whose job it is to enforce and implement justice. And then the Baha'i Faith places, on the other hand, the role of the individual as being to largely forgive and forget. So importantly, what it does is it, now of course, to be clear, I mean, individuals sit on these bodies, and so, you know, individuals will have to, in official capacities, issue justice. But as an individual, and this is, I think, particularly illustrative in the work we do with domestic violence victims. So a domestic violence victim faces great injustice, but it would be horribly unfair to expect her to be both her prosecutor as, as well as the mother in the house who has to allow her children to maybe have a relationship with this man through a custodial arrangement, or for her own sanity and maybe through her own psychological healing, needs to on some level be able to forgive and forget and move on. But it would be unfair to expect her to over maybe a long time period as a case is being criminally adjudicated to have to be her prosecutor, her own prosecutor. And so the way the United States system works is that a woman will complain of a domestic violence dispute, go to the police. The police asks her initially if she wants to bring charges. If she says yes, then the ball is in motion. And if she goes back, let's say a month later, and says uh, to the prosecutor who's now decided to bring the case, you know what, I've changed my mind. He has said he's sorry. I've decided I love him. By the way, this happens all the time. And I don't want to press charges because I've changed my mind. And, and for my own reasons, given the health of my family and my, my children, 
um, I've decided that I want to forgive and forget and move on. The prosecutor then looks at her and says, well, that's nice. But society has an interest in people not hitting each other. And so I represent the state. I don't represent you, actually. I'm not your individual attorney. I'm the state's attorney. And the state has an interest in making sure that people don't hit each other. And so we're pursuing with a case against him. And you are more than welcome to forgive him if you want. You can move on or discuss that with your own social worker or your own attorney. But it is the state's obligation to enforce and promote justice. And so, and this is very much the Baha'i view, actually, of justice, that it's not the, the individual's job, and it's a very burdensome job, to have to enforce justice or implement justice. Um, when I say the individual, I'm talking about the victim, of course. But it is the role of institutions in society to absolutely implement justice and to free that victim, in, in a way, from the burden, then, of what's happened to her. So the work at the Tahrir Just Center also reflects that Baha'i principle of allowing somebody to move on with their life, but also enabling and supporting them in their experiencing just, justice, ultimately. So the work of the Tahrir Justice Center is influenced, obviously my personal life and, and work is influenced by the Tahrir Just Center, um, but our work is too. And um, we are what we call a Baha'i-inspired nonprofit organization. We are, however, not governed by or funded by a Baha'i institution, but the principles on which we operate are informed by the Baha'i faith. So our board of directors are Baha'i and non-Baha'i. Our staff are largely non-Baha'i. We have um, Muslims on staff, Jews on staff, Christians on staff, and our clients uh, represent a very wide range. So, so we are not only Baha'is and we do not only serve Baha'is, in fact, we are mostly non-Baha'is, serving non-Baha'is, but guided by Baha'i principles, and, and the organization is inspired by the Baha'i faith. That's also reflected in our name. The Tahare Justice Center is named after a Baha'i heroine. Tahare was an incredible figure in human history. She, at the age of 13, had memorized the Quran and used to argue theology from behind a black curtain with some of the top uh, mullahs and imams of the time. She lived in the 1800s, the mid-1800s, and she was also known for being an incredible poet. She was known for being very beautiful. She was an outspoken advocate for changes in society that would radically amend everyone's beliefs and particularly affect the equality of women and men. She was also one of the first believers in the Baha'i dispensation, and I guess an analogy to her would be to the 12 disciples of Christ. She was one of the initial um, 19 believers in the Baha'i faith. And um, those among those 19, she was the only woman. And those 19 then ultimately went out and spread the faith, kind of similar to the 12 disciples of Christ. But her most famous act of defiance was that in 1848, she publicly removed her veil before an assemblage of men. And that act of publicly removing her veil was so shocking at the time that a man who was in the audience stood up and he slit his own throat at the sight of her. Now, that gives you some glimpse into the culture and the time of history that she lived in. You know, there's nothing you could do in the United States today that would even compare or, or certainly evoke a response like slitting your own throat at the sight. You could run around naked. It just wouldn't have the same effect. But she lived at a time and in a place where even to remove the veil from her face was considered so dishonorable that someone would attempt to take their own life as a result of that. But what in, in fact happened at that very moment was that Baha'u'llah, who was present, um, and Baha'u'llah is the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, 
defended her and at that whole conference defended her position that she was taking on on different issues and gave her the designation Tahereh. Tahereh is actually a title. It's not her given name. And that title was bestowed on her by Baha'u'llah. And the title means the pure one. And that's a very significant thing. It, 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 you know, to have the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith call a figure like her, who publicly removed her veil, who argued with men, who was very outspoken, pure, was a very symbolic and important gesture to kind of send to the community in that society at the time, but also I think to symbolically illustrate for the Baha'i community for thousands of years, hundreds of years to come, what being a woman was and what being pure was. Um, I can assure you that she was called other names that were not pure by people who were offended by her actions. But his very clear symbolic gesture by giving her that title set the record straight about what being a Baha'i woman was and what the standard was in the Baha'i faith. So that was revolutionary. It was revolutionary not just in the Baha'i community, but also to society at large. And to kind of put her in a historical, larger global context, at virtually the same time in human history, during the same two-week period of time, when Tahari publicly removed her veil at this conference, there was also a conference taking, a pl- taking place in a place called Seneca Falls, New York. And that was uh, the Seneca Falls Conference, which is known in the West as the birth of the women's rights movement. And so kind of astonishingly, at virtually the same time in human history, we had both in the East and in the West these symbolic pronouncements, both at conferences, to the world that a new day was dawning for women and that things were about to start changing. And I think, you know, in the West, we know a lot about Western feminists. We don't often know about the strength of Eastern women and the kinds of things that they did. But what she did had a ripple effect, um, not only within the Baha'i community, but throughout the world. And in fact, the Nobel Peace Prize winner, Shireen Abadi, who was also from Iran, acknowledged her role in kind of setting the standard for women. And Persian women, even to this day, are highly influenced by Tahereh and the things that she did. Tahereh was eventually executed for her beliefs and her activities. She died at the age of 32. And her last recorded words at her execution were, you can kill me as soon as you like, but you will never stop the emancipation of women. And that's the legacy that she left. And and the Tahereh Justice Center is named after her. You mentioned that, that the principles of the Tahari Justice uh, of the Tahari Justice Center are uh, informed by the Baha'i Faith. Can you give some examples of that and try and describe a little bit what it is that you guys are trying to do here at the center that is significantly different from other nonprofit organizations in a similar um, milieu, for instance? Well, uh, there are many ways that the Tahari Justice Center is influenced by being Baha'i inspired. I'm, I'm proud, actually, to say that. We received recently the Washington Post Award for Management Excellence, and we were competing with organizations kind of quadruple our size and, and, and much older than us. And I think that that reflected some of the principles that we're trying to implement here at the center. Um, things like uh, Baha'u'llah talks about when one engages in work in a spirit of service to others, that you're engaging in an active act of worship to God. And now that might sound very lofty, and you know, what does that mean, engaging in your work in a spirit of service to others? And we talk about that here, um, consciously, to try to figure out what does that mean. And um, one of the things that it means, obviously, is serving our clients um, in a spirit of service to them, with dignity and, and um, a kind of a quality of excellence that they deserve. Um, but it also means um, 
caring first and foremost about whether we're being of service to others and less about whether we're getting credit for that service. And that can be a tricky thing in the nonprofit community, which whose funding is often based on what kind of credit you get. And so the community um, can be kind of a turfish community sometimes, striving for credit or acknowledgement. And we have to really fight against that. And, and I think that's a kind of a very deliberate and daily struggle because sometimes to not, to be kind of pushed out of a space or to not be given credit also feels like an injustice at times. And so we may have conversations internally about how much do we care about this and, and what is kind of the line that we draw around making sure that really first and foremost we're, we're trying to be of service. Also, the Baha'i faith and individual Baha'is are nonpartisan. Baha'is do not believe in the participation of partisan politics. Now, Baha'is participate in issues and we um, do civically engage, but we believe that it's important to stay above party politics. Similarly, the Tahari Justice Center refuses to engage in party politics. And because we do advocate on policies with lawmakers, what that means is that we very deliberately work collaboratively with both Republicans and Democrats, that we approach things from an issue orientation rather than from a political orientation. And that's just kind of another way that we are very conscious about being a Baha'i-inspired organization. So there are many ways that, that it affects us. But the work that we do can be very draining. Um, as I mentioned before, we make progress and we have successes, but then we also have backslides and we have negative things that come out. You know, I think in a post-September 11th environment, it's been a very difficult climate for immigrants generally. And our clients are all immigrants. And although they are people deserving of our mercy, our compassion, and our protection as a country, they unfortunately have gotten swept up with some of the anti-immigrant sentiment and some of the legal provisions that have come out to kind of keep terrorists out of the country, what we have also done is make it harder for some asylum seekers and refugees and trafficking victims and the like. So we spend a lot of time com com combating that and kind of trying to, I think, help America recognize its spiritual destiny to be a dignified and compassionate place compared to a keep people out mentality that we're really struggling with right now as a country. So all of those things definitely influence our work. It sounds like you must keep very busy here at the center. And yet it seems like I've heard that you're also involved in children's classes. Is that right? Did I? Personally? Yeah, personally. Yeah. Would you talk a little bit about that? What that those are they're Baha'i children's classes. Is that, is that correct? Yes. On my spare time, um, I am, in, and I consider this really my full-time job, um, I am a mother of two young children, and um, I have a nine-month-old and a four-year-old. And one of the things I care passionately about is making sure that they grow up as good people, and that involves in, you know, not only learning their ABCs and 123s, which they'll get, I'm sure, <laughs> eventually, but really, more importantly, having character and having qualities of being a good human being and being spiritual beings and, and contributing to humanity. And that's really, I think, as a mother, what is most important for me to instill in them. And so in an effort to do that and also consistent with the priorities right now of the Baha'i community, we have uh, children's classes at our home. And, and what we do is every Sunday we host these children's classes, which 
you know, our kids are really, really young. So there isn't a whole lot of like heavy theology that we're, we're, we're putting on them, but we are trying to help them understand God and learn prayers and teaching them about the unity of all religions. And we're teaching them about Baha'u'llah, but also Christ and Moses and Muhammad and we teach them all of those things, but we also teach them virtues. So we teach them how to be patient or how to be forgiving or how to be helpful or how to be compassionate, be of service to others, all of these kinds of things. Now, for a four-year-old, that has to be very illustrative, right? So to explain those qualities, for example, for patients, what we did is there are these little spongy animals that they've stuck into little capsules that look kind of like pills. And what we did for patients is we stuck a warm bowl of water in front of all of the kids, and then we gave them one of these capsules, and we put the capsule in the water, and their job was to stare at the capsule without speaking until it opened. Now, this required a tremendous amount of patience for them, but they did it and they sat there while it opened really slowly. It takes these things like three minutes to kind of unfold. And then they all kind of looked up and said, can we talk now? And, and we said, yes, and you've been very patient. And that's what patient is. It's, you know, and so they, they learn that way. Um, on another day, it was our day to talk about service, being of service to others. And on that day, we baked cookies and we delivered them to an elderly home in our community and the kids all dressed up and they practiced some songs and prayers and they sang them to the, the, the people who are in that home. So anyway, you know, we do things like this to try to kind of illustrate for the kids. And it's, it's really remarkable what they get and they, they get a lot. The other day, my daughter had come home from school with her report card from preschool. And, and it really, my husband and I were gushing, you know, this is our kids first report card and they said some really sweet things in the report card about what a good friend she was and that she shared and all these kinds of things. So um, we were praising her and saying how proud we were of her that she received this report card. And she replied, no, no, you, you can't tell me how wonderful I am because then I won't be humble. And, <laughs> and my husband and I looked at each other and we started crying and we were like, oh my gosh, she understands what humility is, you know? And, um, you know, of course, in her mind, she, the other thing we do is we give them virtues gems. Anytime they exhibit a virtue, they get these little gems that she gets to put in her little virtues treasure chest. And so in her mind, it was actually about getting her gem for the day. She was like, no, no, don't tell me I'm hump because if I, if you tell me how wonderful I am, I won't get my humility gem. So anyway, it was very cute, but they get it. They do get it. I mean, it takes a while and sometimes they understand it. Sometimes they don't, but, um, but I think it's making a difference. I think it's making an impact. And, um, a lot of our friends have decided to join these classes, all of whom are not Baha'is and people who participate in the classes are Muslim. They're Jewish. They're Christian. And they just really resonate with the idea of teaching their children how to be spiritual people, how to be good people. And they are also very supportive of the Baha'i view on what Baha'is call progressive revelation or the unity of all religions and the idea that God progressively reveals himself to humanity through different prophets and different messengers and that we believe in the divinity of all of those religions because they all came from God. Now, people do things to those faiths that, that make them probably less pure from their initial inception, but we believe in their divinity from their inception and that God will return and always does and, and communicates to humanity progressively over time to help us evolve as a civilization. And that, that a remarkable amount of people believe that. And that part of the Baha'i faith in particular, 
was very attractive to a lot of our friends who come from many faiths themselves and, and want their children to learn about different faiths. And I think as parents also, we're, we're really rejecting the religious fanaticism that we see in the world and the inherent superiority that some people seem to believe they have by belonging to one religious club over another religious club. And we want our children to be respectful of all faiths and respectful of all people in the world. And and those are the people who are attending the classes. Prior to closing, I would like to play the audio from the Tahare Justice Center promotional video, which can be found at their website. At home, I was suffering. I was not myself. You know, I didn't have no right. I didn't have no freedom. I was speaking out. I was raising the voices there for women. They threatened me. Verbally abused um, in controlling a relationship. He controlled even the food that I ate. He would grab me. He would put his hands on me and cover my mouth and my nose until I couldn't breathe. He began to abuse me physically and emotionally. Everything good just just didn't exist anymore. And I was made to feel guilty, I was made to feel small, I was made to feel insignificant. My children had to leave their school just so that they would not be kidnapped and have my daughter circumcised. I didn't think that much about myself. I was thinking about how to keep my kids around me. We have to leave because our life was in danger. And, and I was really afraid of him. And I said, okay, it's enough. I, I need to leave. He said he was going to take everything away from me, including my rights to be a permanent resident. In the country I didn't know, without any language at all, without any legal status. There was no resources. I didn't know where to go. And I never thought I was going to be able to get out of that hole. Gender-based violence is a disease afflicting the world today. Women and girls all over the planet from many cultures and many religions are suffering. And we are inspired at the Tahereh Justice Center by their courageous stance against the violence they've suffered to help provide justice. I felt that, that the whole world was against me because my husband made it seem that it was me who was to blame for his um, shortcomings, who was to blame for his losses of temper, who was to blame for him hitting me. It was me who incited him to hit me. I was like a 
caterpillar in a cocoon. I withstood the abuse, physical abuse, mental abuse, psychological abuse while I was in a caterpillar in a cocoon. But slowly um, within myself, um, I began to see um, that maybe I'm not to blame for all of this. And one day I just burst out of the cocoon and flew away. When the Tahrir Justice Center's clients come to us, they often have uh, disadvantages that an American woman maybe facing a domestic violence situation wouldn't have. They may not speak English. They may not have any friends or relatives here to support them. They may be completely unaware of the legal rights available to them. And so it's our privilege to try to help and support their efforts to achieve justice. My immigration status at that time was dependent on my husband's. I was on an H-4 visa and divorce basically means the end of the um, status, immigration status for me. I contacted several people and um, most of them were referred me to Tahiri, most of them said uh, we can't help you. So Tahiri was amongst the several agencies that I made phone calls to and um, they accepted my case. The Tahare Justice Center helps immigrant women who may be out of legal status realize the legal status they are entitled to. The law provides for the protection for women and girls who are facing violence and abuse. We help them realize that legal status. I would have had no option, literally, if Tahiri had not agreed to help me. Since the beginning of my representation with Rati, she has always been her own self-advocate. When she first entered my office, she was traumatized, having left a very violent situation. But still, she was a confident and strong woman. Tahere does not have the resources to represent every single woman who calls us on a daily basis. So without the help of other outside professionals who volunteer their time with us, we wouldn't be able to represent the number of women that we represent. I worked with an attorney that was assigned through a pro bono program from a DC area law firm. I got involved when um, she originally went to Tahere and Tahere contacted um, DLA Piper and asked if there would be an attorney that could represent uh, Rati in the pr immigration process. Since the Tahere Justice Center's inception, we've been privileged to help over 6,000 women and girls receive justice. We're proud that we have a 99% litigation success rate and we've never had a client deported. The Tahere Justice Center pro bono network attorneys are absolute heroes. It's incredible what they donate to the organization as a whole and to our clients specifically. The lawyers at Tahere just make themselves so available to you that if you have any question, no matter how silly you may think it is, they're there and they're there to help you out through the entire process, including some of the stuff that's non-legal in terms of dealing with victims who are from an immigrant population. I think with a lot of um, victims of domestic violence who are immigrants is that they're completely isolated from their family, from their friends, and they're also very uncertain about the process. I was undergoing counseling, I was undergoing a divorce, and my immigration was least of my concerns because Heidi just took, took over all of that for me. They, they were saviors, um, and I have a lot to thank them for. Becoming involved with Tahere gives you a chance to take an active role in helping a woman rebuild her life violence free. More lawyers need to be involved um, with organizations like Tahere because the problem of immigrant women who are facing domestic violence situations 
is rather large and one organization can't do it all. The primary thing we do is provide free legal services to immigrant and refugee women and girls fleeing violence. Um, but we do that in a holistic way. It involves direct services, public policy advocacy, and then public education and outreach. And it's that unique combination of services that enables us to have um, the biggest impact for our clients. In 2001, I was forced to marry the thief of my village, and I didn't want to. I have a fiancé that I love, that I really want to marry him, but, you know, by the custom and the arranged marriage, the forced marriage, you know, I have to marry the thief of my village. It's like a, my own life was taken over. It was a big shadow in my life at that time. It was like a slavery life. I didn't have no freedom, no life, you know, no right. Before, when I was a student, I studied about United States, uh, freedom, that they have a lot of freedom here. I was like, that's the country where I have to go and, uh, you know, to get like peace and um, a better life and forget about, you know, the past and have a bright future. The challenge that I faced to escape from Cameroon to here was, um, a, it was very, very difficult. When she came to me, she was extremely traumatized. She would dissociate in my office. It was hard for her to concentrate. She was um, preoccupied with living in this country and trying to find housing and how was she going to support herself. And it was very difficult for her to focus on telling her story. It was a new country, language barrier, you know, no friend, no relative. and. and I'm sorry. It was it was like a deep hole in my life, you know. It was like I was lost and um, until I met Tayuri. She worked very closely with a therapist at an outside organization and that was crucial to my being able to exact a story from her so that I could on a, a good legal case for her. We recognize that achieving legal justice is really only the beginning for our clients and what they need also is medical care, social services, English as a second language training, job skills training, things of that nature. And so we have full-time social worker on staff um, and other staff that work tirelessly to make sure that our clients receive true justice. If you don't have Tahiri, who's going to fight for who? Who's going to talk about you? You know, who's going to talk about your situation? And always, you know, when you are in abuse women like me, you want that freedom, you know, you want your story to be told to people to listen to it. You know, and it's only Tahiri to do that because sometimes, you know, clients, we are so afraid to talk about it until you met one organization like this and talk about what happened in your life. And they try, you know, to put your life back, to give you your life back. Tahiri gave me the opportunity to start a new life. I'm in a safe place and in safe hands too. I stand here because of Tahiri. I 
think the future is brighter every day. That fear is gone. I'm going ahead in my life. I'm very grateful for everything that Hiri did for me. For women around the world, they really need supportive organizations like Tahiri Justice Center to protect them. It is extremely important for women out there to know that Tahari does exist and that we do have hope to be free. The first day that I came in this center, I met so many wonderful women and um, everybody was ready to help me out and it was like they gave me a new hope, you know, that I didn't have before for like four years. And now I have such a wonderful life and I really appreciate it every day of my life. You know, I can feed my children. I work right now and, you know, it's, it's wonderful. I hope you enjoyed that presentation on the Tahare Justice Center and the interview with Laylee Miller Moreau, founder and executive director of the Tahare Justice Center, a free legal service for women and girls who are fleeing human rights abuses. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.